0: If you had to pick just 50 documents that sum up what it has meant to be British over the centuries, what would you include? This is a challenge that Dominic Selwood grapples with in his new book, Anatomy of a Nation, which chronicles the history of British identity through a diverse and somewhat unexpected selection of its historic documents. From birthday invites and Valentine's Day letters to musical scores and shipping forecasts. Emily Griffith spoke to Dominic to find out more. Today, we're
4: going to be talking about your new book, Anatomy of a Nation, a history of British identity in 50 documents. So can you give us an idea of the range of documents you include in your book and what can they tell us about British identity over the centuries?
2: Yes, with pleasure. So I've taken a very broad definition of identity. I uh, I went off back to the Oxford Dictionary and was really pleased to say that it really encompasses anything that's written or inscribed. And then the OED gives examples of title deeds, manuscripts, tombstones, pictures. So that's given me a really wide palette to work with. So I'm not just looking at, uh, you know, chronicles or charters. There are so many different things in there. There are epics, there are poems, there's art, there's painting, there are political pronouncements, there are court records, maps, newspapers, tapestries, police reports, TV scripts. Um, So the broadest possible range. And that's been really helpful because as we go across the entire period from, you know, 950,000 BC up to sort of 2020, it's really useful to be able to bring in all these different kinds of sources because they speak so well to their age and what is a, a really vital source in one age is quite you know not necessarily as um, as evocative in another so that broad definition has been really helpful in finding things that really bring out the different voices of the different ages.
4: How did you decide what to include when you were narrowing it down to just 50? Was it something that stood out to you about them or was it maybe just how ordinary they were?
2: It is a really difficult choice. I think whatever number you give yourself, you know, you never have enough. So there were things that had to get discarded. And I decided pretty early on, I didn't think there was any point in doing the really, really predictable, obvious ones. So for example, there's no Shakespeare in there. I mean, Shakespeare is obviously mentioned in the book and we discuss him, but in terms of having a headline document, you know, one of the 50, I didn't feel there was any need to go into any great discussion of Shakespeare again, because plenty of books about him anyway so there were ones that i had to i had to leave and what i really tried to do was Think of documents that that get to lives, that get to people, that get to their stories, because you know British history is so long, and British schoolchildren, you know, uh, uh, you know, become really despondent at just the number of dates and battles because there is so much. Um, but it's lovely to move away from that, and actually, the archives really do have brilliant examples of of the non-standard history of of people history, of of individual lives. Um, so really, I wanted to focus on those as much as I could to get to the to get to the people in each period. Some of them are well-known people, but the documents I've chosen about them might not be. Like Isaac Newton, for example, chose one of his translations of an alchemical work. You know, we think of him as a physicist and a mathematician, but actually he was incredibly excited by alchemy and uh, sacred geometry of old buildings and all sorts of things. So it's, it, I've tried to go a little bit off the track and, uh, and offbeat uh, and introduce some people that, um, uh, you know, documents by people that, that people have never heard of. because I think that's also important because they're, they're just as much a part of our history and they tell us about what life was like in different periods.
4: So following on from what you said about the human stories, which characters that emerged particularly stood out to you?
2: So one that I really enjoyed working with was one of the letters from the the collection of paston letters from Norfolk. Because it's this extraordinary context they come in so often when we when we find a document. Uh, particularly a medieval document, it's quite isolated. And, you know, one has to work really hard to, to try and get a context. And sometimes you can, but it's not a very rich context. It might just be an event that, that, uh, in someone's life and what they did in a year or around a particular uh, uh, circumstance. But the thing about the Paston letters is you, you actually have the exchange uh, and you have it uh, for some of the individuals over a lengthy period of time. So I was really delighted. The first Valentine's letter uh, was written in 1477 by a, a woman called Marjorie Bruise. And it's it's kept in the past and letter collection. And so it's not only fascinating to see how Valentine's Day began in London, in the circle of poets around Chaucer, um, but the way it's then taken up, you know, and people, people are referring to this to, to February the 14th as an important romantic day. And in Marjorie's case, she is trying to convince her um, paramour that um, they should go ahead and they shouldn't stop just because uh, his father is not really very excited by her dowry and uh, so she writes this tender letter to him and her mother also writes a letter around that time says look come and stay come and stay over the valentine's weekend i'm sure we can sort all of this out and the lovely thing about it is you get it all in her own words and so it's a a fairly unique insight into a into a late medieval life but then you get the letters the context around that so you get their correspondence for the rest of their life and you know that it did work they did marry they're still writing very tenderly to each other you know decades later it's wonderful to get that kind of context so that's one that i really did enjoy
4: I think you spoke a little bit also in your previous answer about Isaac Newton and perhaps things that people might not quite realise about historical figures. Could you tell us a little bit more about other examples that you've come across in writing your book? So maybe characters that we think we might know, that have actually quite surprised you.
2: Yes. So one of the ones that um, I think really fits into that category well is Thomas Cromwell, that, that, you know, possibly uh, not that long ago, not many people would have heard of, apart from real Tudor buffs. But because of the Hilary Mantel books, Thomas Cromwell is now a household name, pretty much. And, you know, the wonderful BBC series and so on. But that has a very particular portrayal of Cromwell as this sort of diligent, thoughtful, you know, helpful, philosophical, rather sort of slow but purposeful, you know, noble man. I I mean, the reality is, is... entirely different. And so when you sit with Cromwell's diary, uh, they've, got, they've got large chunks of them in the British Library. And you read the way how he actually went about putting the Reformation into practice and quite calmly writing in his diary lists of people that he was going to have murdered, like the Abbot of Glastonbury Abbey, for example. And Cromwell sets out in his notes, these are the people who will be brought as witnesses against him. This is what they're going to say. And this is going to be the result. He is going to be executed, which is, which is the complete kind of contrast of what one thinks reading the, uh, the Wolfhole novels. I mean, he was a very, very purposeful, meticulous uh, judicial murderer. And, you know, there was no magna. Carter around in those days, Henry and his court could do what they wanted to do, and Cromwell did, and they enforced, you know, vast swathes of the Reformation by by judicial murder. So things like that, I think, are lovely to be able to uh, to bring out in the book, just so that we get a more accurate sense, you know, of some of these people, because we have so much history that you know we can go wrong over certain individuals just because we hear one thing about them or there's a particular portrayal that's sort of popular. So. Unearthing some of that and getting back to the originals, I think is um, is a really is a really fun and valuable thing to do.
4: Not all of the sources, the documents that you mention are grand texts of state. You mention quite a few more social and cultural sources, such as things like piece of music or arts. Could you perhaps tell us about why you felt these were important to include?
2: Yes, absolutely. The big documents of state, of course, they're important because they're, they're often, you know, those turning points when history changes because something major happens. But understanding what life was like for people or sometimes seeing things in a broader context can require going down to a, to a more granular level. So one piece of music, for example, that I chose... Well, there there are quite a, a nice you know, number of pieces of music. Uh, was Vaughan Williams's "The Lark Ascending"? Now, that's often cited as one of the you know most popular pieces of music in England on English radio or Britain rather, and um, and it is it's a wonderfully lyrical, evocative piece. But the history behind it is incredibly interesting. Vaughan Williams first wrote it in in 1914, and he scored it first just for piano, and that's often what happened. Composers would start by writing a piece um, for for the piano because then it was much cheaper to put on, but it also meant that people could buy the sheet music and play it at home. And so that, you know, it became more popular that way. And only if it became, you know, much more widely known, did they then orchestrate it for a full orchestra, which is a much more expensive production. So Vaughan Williams did this in 1914 and, you know, it is, it is a charming piece uh, if you listen to the piano version. But then when the First World War broke out, he volunteered and he went to Flanders first as a, as a stretcher bearer, which was a particularly arduous job and very traumatic for the individuals involved. But then he volunteered and he got himself commissioned as an artillery officer and he actually fought. Once he was back, he then he then orchestrated the Lark Ascending in 1920. So we have these two versions, the 1914 and the 1920. And yes, the orchestra brings this whole other kind of color and tonal palette to the music, which is which is just delightful. But you also feel there's something going on there, something about his experience in the trenches, something about um living in the countryside in the trenches. That's not the the wonderful countryside that's being evoked in the lark ascending. That's you know that's that sort of carnage and mechanical slaughter and so And so his attempt to evoke all of that wonderful pastoral, idyllic soaring beauty in the, in the orchestrated version. You feel that that's a response to the war in lots of ways. And as, you know, the violin sort of dives in and out and swoops, you can sort of see the lark, you know, flying over this peaceful English countryside. So I think um, it's not a grand document of state, but it tells us a huge amount about, about people and the way they're thinking and, and you know, what Britain was like in that period, you know, what people were clinging on to. And then, of course, there's the, there's the double poignancy, because now... There having been you know fifty years of industrial insecticides, large parts of the country are simply green concrete. The hedgerows have gone, the flowers have gone, the insects have gone, the butterflies have gone, the birds have gone. So that that England that Vaughan Williams is evoking and that you can hear when you listen to the piece, that's really you know disappeared in very large places, and that's a real wake up call you know to us. The lark, seventy five percent culled in terms of its population, it's now on the red list. You know it's endangered. So you know that piece not only helps us think about the early twentieth century, but also helps us think about you know what we're doing now and what our priorities should be
4: obviously documents might just be ordinary they might be everyday things in their own time can we say that some documents have become a more important part to the british identity to us as a nation as time has gone on.
2: Yes, that's definitely true. Some documents have become more important over time and, and not always for the for, for the right reasons historically. So, I, you know, I think a great example is Magna Carta, which is widely held up, not only across Britain, but across the, 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 the Anglosphere, you know, the English-speaking world. The Americans took it on in the 1700s and it became very important to the founding charters of many of the states as they were emerging. You know, it has an incredible place in the jurisprudence of Of the common law across the English-speaking world. But it's not remotely what it was. When it was first drafted, it was a a peace treaty between John and his barons to stave off civil war. It was very fractious. There were a number of versions of it. They did finally get it signed. No one paid any attention to it. It was in the bin in five weeks. The Pope excommunicated everyone who'd had anything to do with it for trying to fetter the power of a divinely anointed king, and they went to war. It really wasn't this moment in English history when the king and Parliament decided there are certain inalienable rights which every English person should have. It only became that much later in in the Stuart period when, when parliamentarians and legal parliamentarians were trying to find historical precedents for how they could rein in the Stuart monarchs. And so we now have a completely false idea of it. Not only was it never intended to be some great democratic document, not only was it in the bin in five weeks, but also it wasn't about giving rights to every English person. I mean, it only really gave rights to to the barons, to the very, very privileged Norman elite at the time. It was almost nothing for women. There was almost nothing for unfree people. There was nothing for, for the average, you know, English villain working on an estate somewhere. There was nothing for people who fell entirely outside of that, um, the Jewish communities. So it really, uh, you know, we, we, we really couldn't have a more different view of what it actually was, and what we think it was. And of course, if you look today on the statute book... There are only about two or three clauses of Magna Carta left, and they're not the ones that you think are particularly important. And even that great principle that it, that it, that it seems to enunciate, that, um, that everyone has a right to you know, a free trial and so on, that wasn't even a new statement of law at the time. That was already the law of the land. It wasn't bringing in anything different. So yes, I think understanding how documents have been taken up in the national story um, can be very interesting because, again, we often, we often have a simplified view of them.
4: How far do you think we impose our own modern ideas on these historical sources?
2: Historical sources do require, you know, a, a, as everyone knows, a lot, a lot of care when looking at them to understand them in their own context, and it's very difficult sometimes to get rid of our modern contexts. For example, there's there's one document. It's not one of the fifty, but I, I do I do reproduce a chunk of it in the document from the 1800s, which talks about this wicked folly of women's rights, and wouldn't it be terrible if if women were allowed to unsex themselves, and how disgusting a creature a woman would become if uh, she refused to rely on the, the strength of the male. And you think, you know, this is this is really difficult to read. This is violent, aggressive language. And, and it's upsetting to think that somebody was writing that. And then it's even more shocking when you realise that it was Queen Victoria who was writing it and she was ruling a third of the globe and couldn't possibly have thought that any of that was true. So, yes, it is, it, it is possibly quite a glib example, but it is always important to, to see the documents in their own terms. That doesn't mean that we can't take a view and say... Society really has changed since then, you know, and we have a very different understanding. But it's um, it, it, it's always something one has to guard against to, um, to, to snap judge it. You know, they, they come about in a context because of the environment at the time. And there's always a reason for it. And that's one of the things that makes history so fascinating. It's understanding, well, why is that what people thought at that time?
4: Can we perhaps see contemporaries of the sources searching for or trying to define their own identity by creating or engaging with these sources?
2: Because the spread of documents is so broad, it does mean that some are some are what we might say truthful or accurate documents. Some some contain Inside them, the truth that the author want, the author wanted, but you know, forgeries are also documents. People fabricating charters to pretend they have rights to land that they didn't have. That's also a very valid document. It's a it's a genuine document of its age. It just happens to be that the content inside it is not true, but it's still a document that was created in the period you're looking at, and and it's effecting and achieving something that the author you know wanted it to uh, to achieve. So I think. Looking at documents and understanding how they were used is also a very important part of it. So um, one of the earliest documents is Caesar's Gallic War um, because he was the first person to, to land on Britain's shores who was able to read and write and, and did read and write, or at least as far as we know about. And, and he was busy composing his great political propaganda work of all of the great subjugation of the Celts he was and the Gauls he was undertaking in, in France um, to boost his political career back in Rome. And so he wanted to add in that, you know, he went across the Channel, he crossed the dreaded god Oceanus, but he did it because he's so brave and he landed in England um, and he saw the things that he saw. And so he writes accounts of the uh, uh, the people that he found, which is really in the south and the east of England. And he says all sorts of things. They're terrifying. They paint themselves in woad. They're all polygamous. They live in these large family groups. Um, you know, they're, they're really very barbarous. And this is very different to what, you know, we would expect in in civilised Rome. So it's a genuine document from the period. Yes, people. Yes, people read it. Um, is it true? It's very hard to know. Uh, was Caesar engaged in propaganda? Absolutely. Was he trying to magnify his own greatness uh, and, and stress what a you know phenomenal military and brave leader he was? Yes, he was. So um, understanding how how people of the age may have turned to these documents and seen in them things that they either supported or didn't support, you're absolutely right. Is is part of getting them properly into their context?
4: How have you found? And how easy is it to build a picture of national identity from these individual sources that you've been looking at?
2: Identity is not a simple concept. And so if we're thinking about how we understand identity, we need, we need, we need to latch on to something that is a constant in these different periods so we can compare one with another uh, in a way that, that makes sense. So in many ways, the, the exploration of Britain's identity through documents is quite, um, is quite an, an obvious and logical way to do it because documents are the, you know, the black boxes of, of their age. They are the memory recorder that tells us what people were thinking and doing, you know, about themselves, about the country, about identity, you know, about all sorts of things. So one nice thing is the consistency of being able to go to written sources. But then as we said at the beginning, the diversity of those sources. You know, it could be anything from a poem in the 7th century to a newspaper clipping in the the 20th century. But I think documents are a very good way uh, of looking at identity because they are very diverse, they are true to themselves, they are documents that people wanted to create, so they say something genuine about about the period, even if what they say is not accurate, and they are consistent. And they give a breadth. Uh, Sometimes if one's only looking at one particular type of source... For example, you know coins. Then you just get one prism to to look at at, the, at their periods through, and you could look at coins down the ages, and, and you know you could learn a lot by doing that. But actually, if you broaden it to to documents, and in their widest sense that I've done, and you can take in musical scores and paintings and carvings uh, and things people wrote officially and things people wrote personally, I think you really are getting getting to a level of richness and deepness um, that really only documents let you do. And the fact that we have so many that are so well-preserved. You know, one of the earliest documents in the book is the birthday invitation from Claudia Severa, who's a a young army wife uh, living up near Hadrian's Wall. And around the year 100, she sends a birthday invitation to a friend of hers uh, who's at the fort of Vindolanda. uh, And it's a birthday invitation card. Um, But what an extraordinary thing to have. I mean, to be able to, to look at Roman Britain instead of through... Julius Caesar's pompous chronicles or or uh, you know Tacitus's Life of Agricola or you know these very sort of curated documents that are political stories that have all sorts of things to go you know to um uh, that you have to peel away to look at a young person's letter to a friend saying please come to my party because the day's going to be so much nicer if you're there is a wonderful insight. It just it humanizes it in an amazing way. And then when you really look at the card and you see that so the first three quarters has been written by her scribe, that's fine. But the final quarter is written by her in her own handwriting. So you know, we also know that probably a late teenager or early 20-year-old woman um, in, in Northumberland, around a hundred. Could read and write. And her her writing's actually very good. It's quite easy to decipher. You know, we learn extraordinary things by that. It's not only the oldest woman's writing in in Britain, it's actually the the oldest known piece of of woman's handwriting in the whole of the Roman Empire, which is pretty amazing when you consider that Britain is actually just this small little piece floating off the northwest corner of the Roman Empire. So being able to, to get down to that level it's something I think only only documents can really let you do. They can let you into the personal in a way that archaeology or other things can't quite.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: I think lots of British people do think that the world thinks that we are, you know, a very a very stiff upper lipped, not very emotional kind of people who are very pragmatic. In fact, I think that's entirely wrong. I think the British are probably the only people who think that about themselves. Not many people in other countries have that view of the British. That's quite sort of self-generated.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
4: You spoke a little bit about consistency there. Could we say that we've had a consistent national identity over the centuries?
2: One of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to come to some to some conclusions about British identity, but also to explore how it's changed so much. And Part of the background was listening to the the various debates on all sides during the during the Brexit referendum and realising that people were talking, you know, as much about different views of our past as they were of different views of our present, because the two are actually very strongly connected. And then with the culture wars and the statues debates going on while I was writing it as well, you know, thinking about, well, what does this say about us, that we seem to have these different views of, of what it means to be British and what it, it meant to be British, for example, in imperial times, or what it should mean to be British going forward? So using that and going back to the very beginning going back to prehistory you know before we have writing and we know that we have these these different groups first who come wandering onto the british peninsula because it's still a peninsula at that stage it hasn't been separated off from from europe and coming and going for for you know, a very, very long time, these big game hunters from Europe, and then the first population actually settling around 10,000 BC, and then being replaced twice, almost completely, you know, over 90% of the DNA replaced twice, uh, once by the farmers who come, and then, then by the Bell Beaker people. Then you think of the Romans, you think of the, then the Celts re-emerging in sub-Roman Britain, and then the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings and the Normans and then the Angevins and the French, and then all these other groups who have come, you know, Indians with the East India Company, Africans who've been here for a very, very long time, Roma who come over in, you know, Tudor times. No, I don't think we have, I don't think we have had a consistent identity. I think it's it has been a country that through a vast number of invasions, migrations, changes, has, has had very, very many different identities. And so the fractures that we see in identity today, there is historical precedent for that you know we have been a very divided uh, area many times in the past whether it's in sub-Roman Britain and Celts and Anglo-Saxons or whether it's after the civil war or whether it's uh, you know the Normans and the Saxons so no i don't i don't think we have had an identity i think if i if I, if I try and really zoom out and say, well, what is there anything that has typified all these completely different people? One is obviously a very close connection with Europe, uh, vast numbers of these people, whether it's the original prehistoric people, whether it's the Romans, whether it's the uh, uh, Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, the Normans, these are European peoples. You know, Britain is part of that wider European family in terms of keeping on that, you know, Romanitas after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, the church holding that all together throughout the very, very long medieval period. Britain has deep European roots. So I don't say that in a, in a modern EU political sense. I say that in a, in a cultural, social sense. Britain has been a, a major part of the intellectual, social and economic world of Europe for, for at least 2,000 years. So there wasn't a rupture. So, so I think one comment about identity is we are part of that European family. I think another comment I would make, obviously all of those peoples are very different, spoke different languages, thought about things in different ways, had different uh, heritages. But if we look back, this this small archipelago of 5,000 islands that is Britain, actually incredible creativity over a really, really sustained period of written history. Uh, There aren't many eras in which people from the the islands of Britain aren't known, listened to, provoke thought celebrated around either it's Christendom sort of or the wider world. In so many different areas, whether it's um, you know, in the church in the medieval people, whether it's militarily Pretty much in all ages, whether it's sort of the creativity of art, music, design, you know, clothing, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Again, in very, very many periods, Britain just seems to have a have a knack of this creative exuberance that gets it noted. Uh, and lots of those people, I would add as well, also seem to be kind of gifted amateurs. I think I think Britain has been a, a real nation of gifted amateurs. You know, lots of people who invent these things which become utterly iconic. You know, sort of do it do it in their spare time. You know, there are plenty of examples of that. Some of the most amazing British typography that's out there, you know, done by, you know, people like Caslon uh, uh, and Baskerville. Caslon was, a, was a, a gun engraver. Uh, Baskerville was a writing master. You know, these people just sort of these things, you know, on the side and they became world relevant. You know, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web while designing a phone directory for, for CERN in Switzerland. So um, I think creativity and I think sort of accidental creativity in some ways are traits that I could say are, have been part of British identity for at least 2,000 years.
4: Are there any sources that you've discussed in your book that you think might challenge modern perceptions of what it is to be British?
2: I think that in more recent times, when we tend to have this idea of Britain as, for the idea that became petrified you know in stone in the Victorian period of sort of stiff upper lip and the empire and you know really epitomized by sort of the royal family in the early 20th century you know very much about duty um very very earnest about lots of things uh, and i think i think lots of british people do think that the world thinks that we are you know a very a very stiff upper lip not very emotional kind of people who are very pragmatic in fact, I think that's entirely wrong. I think the British are probably the only people who think that about themselves. Not many people in other countries have that view of the British. That's quite sort of self-generated. If I really think about things that the other nations might think about us, I think actually sense of humour is something that would really, really come across. And we probably take it for, for granted. But in the World War One, for example, in, in the trenches, the 12th Battalion of the Sherwood Foresters, you know, while everyone else was getting on with, you know, the... the, the the rigors, you know, of war. They found an old printing press and they began printing a satirical newspaper. And this satirical newspaper is absolutely biting. I mean, it's so rude about the chain of command, about senior officers, about the purpose of the war. And early on, a senior general saw this and, you know, some some individual said, "Look, we have to close this down, sir. This is this is absolutely terrible. You know, we can't let this happen." And that general had the had the circumspection to say, "Actually, this is really important. You know, this is helping people get through it. We are not closing it down. We are going to completely let this carry on." And they. did. And so it went through all these wonderful editions and it's really zany. The humour sort of almost predates the goons and and Monty Python. It is very British. It's very surreal and it's very silly, um, but also very trenchant in its observations. You know, it's quite, it's really quite biting satire in places. And during the Brexit referendum, Die Welt, which is a big German uh, uh, newspaper, published another edition of this trench newspaper and they said look we we are publishing this they did it in the style of the original one it was brilliant they got they had all the sort of you know the hooks and the idioms and everything they did really really well and they said look please don't leave Europe for the simple reason that life without British humour is imaginable but pointless so yes I think there are I think there are there are documents that challenge what we think about ourselves and humour is one that I would I would say is well up there. On a
4: similar note are there Any sources that you draw upon that you think might actually surprise our listeners?
2: I think one of the most surprising documents is the one that I choose to end with. After all of the traditional kind of documents, my last one is a a map. And it's it's a visual representation, it's a map of BBC Radio 4's shipping forecast. And people might say, well, why, you know, why would that be the... The destination you get to in this book about identity. And the answer is because I think I think the shipping forecast actually encapsulates so much about what is British. For people who don't know it, you know, it's worth tuning in. Radio 4 broadcasts it several times a day. Um, The longest version is in the small hours of the morning. But it goes around, it goes around the British Isles in this sort of maritime meditation uh, of Britain. Um, And it, it does the areas of sea, and then it does the actual coastal areas, you know, from sort of one 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 piece of of, uh, the coastline to another. It does the inshore waters, it does the lighthouses. Um, And it's absolutely fascinating because, you know, where it starts, anybody who knows it, is sort of this familiar liturgy. You know, Viking is the first word, and it's the waters just off the coast of Norway. And that brings to mind all of the you know the viking longboats massing coming over for those first you know invasions and attacks on you know on lindisfarne and on britain and eventually taking over and you know actually taking the british throne but you know as it goes round you end up in the waters where the navy fought you know the german grand fleet in world war 1 you end up going down to trafalgar uh, where you have all of those memories either of the spanish armada gathering or then of course of you know nelson's battles at trafalgar i think i think it's um it is a, it is a surprising document to end with but when you when you really listen to it and you go through it is a, it is a meditation on Britain's history because the history has been so maritime from those first um, uh, waves of farmers who came over. You know the oldest known boat in the world, the oldest surviving boat is the Dover boat. It was found at Dover. That says something. You know Br- the British people have always been on the water, and uh, the shipping forecast. I think not only is it geographical, but it's also deeply historical. And as you go through those those pockets of water and those bits of coastline, and you think of what's happened there, it, it is almost a summation of Britain's history in itself. You know, you could do a history of Britain in the shipping forecast and you would be able to cover most things. So that's probably a surprising ending. You know, people might have thought that I would have ended with the, the Brexit referendum paper. In fact, that, that that is there, but that's only document number 48. Document 49 is, is also slightly surprising. Uh, it's a photograph of the Parthenon sculptures in the British Museum. And for many people, that's obviously it's a very hot topic. Uh, you know, should should these be given back? Were they were they taken wrongly during the colonial period? And th- it's a very intense and fascinating debate. But what I think is interesting, and why I wanted a photograph of them, is that they represent a very you know important part of britain's cultural life which is the british museum which is this window into this entire world of britain's activities from long before anything imperial to long after anything imperial and actually there is not a vast amount of imperial stuff in the british museum although people often say that there is but looking at that photograph and realizing that objects like the parthenon sculptures yes they began in greece but they've also had now 200 years of life in britain as well and that the documents and texts, you know, they move around the world, they tell all these different stories. It was important for me, I think, in, in recognising the complexity of Britain's cultures and the influences that have acted on Britain and that Britain has, has taken to, to other parts of the world. And one way or another, we do have to understand Britain's imperialism and colonialism. It, it is a material part of identity over, over, you know, the last several centuries. And wherever as a nation we decide to go with our understanding of it, it is not something that can that can be ignored. We have to take views and understand how we reconcile ourselves to it. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's also a surprising document. But I think what it opens up in terms of being able to think about Britain's uh, impact across the world and also the way other cultures have impacted Britain and brought things to Britain uh, is really fascinating when thinking about our identity.
4: What can these sources tell us about our more and less favourable moments in history?
2: I think that these documents tell us that we we always need to understand our history a little bit better and understand the documents a little bit better. And like, you know, the Magna Carta example or the Thomas Cromwell example, um, lots of these documents actually turn out to be something other than one thinks they are. And I don't think it's just this choice of documents. I think that's true of most things. Um, but in term in terms of more, I mean, uh, so one of the documents is William Blake, his his poem, um, And Did Those Fiends in Ancient Times, which of course, you know, we all know as Jerusalem. And it was actually the preface to a, a, a wider poem that he did, um, uh, about Milton, a poem in Milton in two parts. But someone like Blake, I mean, that's regularly voted, you know, Jerusalem as, you know, what should be the English national anthem. You know, some of the other constituent parts of the United Kingdom have their own anthems. You know, it's regularly thought that this should be regular, you know, wins polls um to be, to be England's. And, you know, early in the 20th century, you know, when when the monarch first heard it said, you know, that's a lot better than, than God Save the King. I think I'd rather have that. And we've adopted it. And, you know, and this is this is a national song. I mean many of our national sporting teams now use it. And most people seem to you know, seem to love it and feel that it says something about us. But Blake himself was utterly rejected in his lifetime. Uh, the, the, he, he did one major exhibition in, in the rooms above uh, above above his shop. And, and the critics said, you know, he has a distempered mind. This man should be locked up. This is all, you know, utterly insane, you know, it's drivel. And it was only after his death, a, a barrister called uh, Gilchrist started assembling Blake's things. And, and, and then uh, the, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, the Rossettis, then finally published Gilchrist's book, and people thought, my God, this is amazing. You know, this was the start of romanticism, you know, which 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 is again, this is a very British thing. But but you know, in terms of in terms of us now, you know, yes, we lord Blake now, but you know, we didn't at the time. You know, we 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 picked him up afterwards. And you know, we get we get we get we get things the other way around that we do lord at the time that actually turned out not to be very important at all. Like you know in an imperial context, the Battle of Rourke's Drift um, during, during the Zulu Wars in Africa immensely famous for a very long period of time, really splashed across all of the newspaper headlines, really run. Eleven VCs were awarded at that battle, which is more than any other event. I think I think D-Day only resulted in one VC or two VCs or something. But you know, eleven for this one, you know, engagement in um in Natal province in Africa. And, you know, still even in the 1960s, so the a uh, film of it was made with Michael Caine, and certainly in that generation it was it was a big film and it was still a big story. In reality, the Battle of Rourke's was utterly insignificant and meaningless. What was happening was that the the, uh, the British army had just suffered their worst defeat in the history of the empire. Uh, over a thousand soldiers had been massacred by the Zulus at Isandlwana. And this this was playing very badly in the media uh, at home. And so it was decided that we needed a good news story to take the bad news off the front pages. So this, this successful but, but strategically utterly insignificant Battle of Rourke's Drift became uh, eulogised as sort of, you know, the great success of what, you know, what our boys are doing abroad, you know, in a very typical sort of media way, but it was absolutely purposefully done, you know, by the government, and this was stage managed as the thing, so that people wouldn't wouldn't feel upset over their cornflakes that so many British soldiers have just been massacred in Africa. So, in terms of the more and less, I think we are we are very good at, um, at not appreciating always the significance of things at the time. Either we over-appreciate or we underappreciate.
4: I think my final question for you would be. Looking back at the historical treasure trove of sources that you include in your book and that you've researched, how do you think we should now approach the topic of identity? How should we think about it going forward?
2: As a country, we really are in a pickle over our identity and and we are we are um very tribal about it and that actually is a feature of of british life throughout the book you can see tribalism is something that that um really does seem to resonate in britain when one thinks of other countries where they have parliaments that attempt to sit in an amphitheater or in the round to express community of purpose and compromise and you know in britain we still have uh you know a neo gothic chamber where people sit across from each other and jab fingers and yell and throw pieces of paper it's it's still aggressive and tribal. Um, many countries enjoy sport. Many countries enjoy football. Britain, not alone, but, you know, is one of the countries that's managed to take that celebration of sport to, to tribal levels of, at times, really horrific violence. Um, so we do we do have that tribalism. And, you know, even our political system with, with sort of the two main parties, which are the only two that sort of really get a meaningful look in, um, it's very tribal. Um, and so I think um, the country is currently fractured. Um, and, and Brexit didn't fracture the country, but Brexit showed where those fault lines are uh, and brought out some of them, not all of them, but some of them, um, but in a quite in a quite astounding way, um, because really, you know, the vote was 50-50, you know, if, if you're going to be broad about it. Um, so the, the country is, is starkly divided, and again, when we think of the statues and the culture wars, for everybody who is, uh, you know, in the media saying, you know, it is absolutely wrong to have a statue of Oliver Cromwell or, or Colston or you know whoever it might be, and I think there are people who we should not have statues of. I don't think they should be held up as representing British values because they don't. Cromwell is one of them. I mean, the guy was a genocidal mass murderer, uh, you know, who, who wrought you know absolute bloodbath in Ireland. What are we telling the world when we have a statue of him? Outside our parliament, um, so um, how you know how do we come how do we come back from these fractures? Sorry, I was going to say as well, you know, in the culture wars for every for everyone who you know uh, uh, makes a case for not having Cromwell. There are plenty of people who are, who are who are very upset and angry and say we need to keep these. They're part of our identity. So how do we bring all this together? Well, my 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 suggestion in the book is that actually we have to stop thinking about. You know, Winston Churchill and Keep Calm and Carrying On and Empire and, and, you know, the days when I suppose Britain last knew what it was. When it had an empire, we knew we were the, we the centre of the world's largest empire. When Churchill was was in Downing Street during the Second World War, but not, not necessarily at other times. At other times, he was fairly disastrous prime minister. But when he was there in the Second World War, he, he achieved what the nation needed to achieve. There are questions about whether it was all done in the right way, but you know, nevertheless, Britain had a sense of itself. You know, Churchill gave it a sense of itself, and I think we rely on those. I think we rely on the on the Churchill and the Empire um, to, as a crutch um, to say, well, you know, that's what Britain is, and somehow we have to we have to replicate, reproduce, rely on that, or find what that is now in the twenty first century. And I think that's completely wrong. I think I think that is trying to use a uh, nineteenth and twentieth century tools to tackle 21st century problems because the problems of the world now you know globalization disparity in wealth uh, the environment those will not be solved with the tools that we had in the 1800s and the 1900s and so my suggestion is we have to stop thinking of Britain as just that Britain that that existed you know in the late 1800s and early 1900s and we have to look all the way back to 950,000 BC to all of those different groups. And, you know, we talked about them, You know the Celts, the Romans, the Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans, the Angevins, the Roma, the Indians, the Africans, the vast numbers of um, people who came to live in this country in the middle of the 20th century when there was a very liberal immigration policy from the former empire and commonwealth. We have to look back all you know across all of that period, and look at all Britain's history, and say we have survived, and we have been you know a nation of great creativity, uh, and a nation that people notice in all of those epochs. And we just need to understand that our current identity is not fit for purpose, and we need to take inspiration from the fact that we've reinvented ourselves so many times to reinvent ourselves again for for who we're going to be now. Because at the moment we're stuck just with a rearview mirror. And arguments about are we twentieth century European or are we are we sort of imperial and Churchill? And I think the answer is we need something new. And in the past we have done that after the Civil War, you know, many times after the uh, sort of Normans and Anglo Saxons, Britain came together and forged itself a new identity. Um, And I think really that's the point we've got to. And I think we should take inspiration from that much longer past. So there was a long period when you know Britain was was a Scandinavian country, you know, when 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 the Vikings were were ruling from from uh, Westminster, you know, Britain was part of an Anglo Scandinavian. Empire that encompassed, you know, not the countries that we now think of, not America, or not sort of the the French and continental empire of, uh, you know, William the Conqueror and the Normans and then the Plantagenets. So, you know, we have been many different things. We've been Celtic, we've been sort of French focused, we've been Scandinavian, we've had this whole Anglosphere. And I really think that we need, we just need to let go of of the keep calm and carry on Britain and and allow ourselves to go back further. And let's be really creative in finding our new identity.
0: That was Dominic Salwood. His book, Anatomy of a Nation, A History of British Identity in 50 Documents, is out now published by Constable. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.